talking to each other on the phone and we were like, oh man, I'm so nervous, man, and this and this and that or whatever. And he's like, and then he's like asking me, he's like, dude, what, what shirt are you going to wear? And I was like, I was thinking about asking you, but then I was like, no, don't ask him what shirt you're going to wear. Oh, and then not? he did ask me. And then he was like, dude, I was like, I was wondering, like, what if Casey asked me about Dr. Deed such and such? And I was like, I'm just thinking about what not to say. And I was like, you should, you should start with that. Start with, look, the first thing I want to say, you want to want to edit out. And then Manny just goes <laughs> off. <laughs> so well, did this you, will be did... part of the episode, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, all this is going in. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> oh, fun. Well, well, I'll go ahead and get started then, I think. You know, hey everybody, it's a percussion podcast. This is episode 252. It's September 13th, but you're probably listening on October 8th. This is a roundtable episode we have for you. We're going to be doing these pretty regularly. And I just want to say hey. Well, I guess first the regular co-host. Hey, Ksenia Komunovich, how's it going? Hey, Casey, it's going well. How are you? Good. Do we have to call you Dr. K? We were just talking about that earlier. No, no, I'm not a villain. No, not for now. Uh Uh-huh. What about uh, Dr. C? How's it going, Dr. C? I'm doing well. How are you, Casey? Oh, it's good. picked up on How are you, Master C? Oh, I like that. I like that. So I have a student named Paige Durr. She got her master's here, and she said, you can now call me Mass Durr. It's pretty cool. Because her last name's Durr. It's sort of like Sam Um and Drum. Doctor. <laughs> yeah. I think your students call you Master Master, Kangelos? <laughs> I don't. They call me Casey, and they're cool with that. It's all fine. Doctor, oh, the other, uh, oh, not Dr. K, Dr. V is here. How's it going, Carly? There you go. I'm doing well, Casey. How are you? Good, thank you. This is our second episode of the day that we're recording, so we're all a little worn out, but this is a new kind of thing, so we should be pretty stoked. And let me just tell you who's in this round table today. We've got Manny Trevino. He's Ivan Trevino's cousin. How's it going, Manny? Definitely not his cousin, but I'm doing great. I'm super happy to be here. Oh, sorry. My brother knows Ivan. Super random. He knows it. See, are you sure you're not related? You have a, the same name. Uh, maybe somewhere in the line, somewhere, but I, I don't know about it. <laughs> well, it's good to have you. Y'all, Manny is the director of percussion at Lone Star High School. I had no idea that Lone Star Percussion had a whole high school in their shop. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's in the back. It's in the warehouse. Uh huh. I've yeah. been I've been in the warehouse. Yeah, yeah. I missed that. <laughs> I missed the whole thing. Well, you got to tell us a little about that later. We also have Jorge Mojica Jr. here. How's it going, George? Hello. Just here. Honored to be here with you guys. <laughs> and are you coming from San Benito, Texas? Is that right? Um, I teach there, yes. I teach okay. at San Benito High School in San Benito, Texas. is one high school, one town. I okay. live in Rancho Viejo, Texas, which is a small town just outside of Brownsville, Texas. So same thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Did, did you, um, you, you didn't happen to know my student, Robbie Garza from Brownsville, Texas, did you? No, but I, now I know him now. Um, as soon uh-huh. as he told me that name, I texted, I texted a friend of mine who's an older educator from the region. And sure enough, it was a student. I figured there's got to be a quick connection there. He's told me about yeah. Brownsville being a small place and everyone knows everyone. Well, and, but. well actually, Manny is my student, ex-student. See, there you go. And you and you taught his cousin Ivan, right? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. No, it's such a small world. Yeah, Robbie Garza is a buddy now, and yeah, he's my student for a while. Then he was a, a fellow student at Rice University, and he's just yeah, he's like off doing amazing things. Uh, Alan Ling might be joining us later. I think he's scheduled to be here today, but he's maybe still chiming in. And yeah, gosh, one of the older names you all have ever heard on the podcast is also here because he's asked many questions and I think been following us kind of since the start. It's uh, Jade Hales. How's it going, Jade? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to finally be here. Yeah, yeah, of course. You're very welcome. Jade is a current member of Left Edge Percussion, which is the group your teacher, Terry Longshore, uh, teaches, right? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, we are the like graduate students. Yeah, more or less. So he he has all the graduates just play a, a lot of like Cage and Reich and you know yep. classic and modern rep. Is that kind of the Steve Schick 
play with your student model, like redfish, redfish, bluefish kind of model. I know Morris Palter also does that. And wasn't Terry Longshore a Schick student? Yeah, he was. Um, he he usually tries to play uh, during like quintets and stuff, but we only have this last year we had five, and it, it was uh, he wasn't able to yeah participate very much sure 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 well cool cool it's great to have you jade and like i said we're releasing on october 8th and i think carly you've got the little news date of what happened today for us yeah there are a couple interesting things that happened on october 8th in music history um the first is that october 8th 1930 is the birthday of japanese composer toru takamitsu um and of course Takamatsu is known for blending some elements um, and even instruments of Western music and Japanese music and instruments. Um, and I didn't know this, but when I was reading about it, I, I found his his music was admired and even promoted by composers like Stravinsky and Copland um, earlier in the in the 20th century. Of course, in percussion, Takamatsu is most well known um, for the trio Rain Tree. Probably we all know this piece. Um, but he also wrote some really nice chamber music, including percussion, like mixed chamber ensembles. There's a piece called Bryce um, for flute, two harps, marimba, and percussion. Another piece called Rain Spell for flute, clarinet, harp, piano, and vibraphone. Um, so if you like Rain Tree, it's probably worth checking out some of these other lesser, lesser performed pieces by Takamitsu. Um, there are a few other um, interesting historical tidbits that happened on October 8th. Uh, they both involve intellectual property. The first happened in 2008. I don't know if y'all remember this, but uh, the, the Foo Fighters, and especially their frontman Dave Grohl, complained about John McCain, um, of course the, the then presidential candidate, using their song My Hero without permission. Um, and this also makes what? me remember like... How, how normal were politics back in 2008 that this was a big deal? Um, so how Dave did screw Grohl that wrote, up? That's amazing. What? I, I, sorry, how, how does like the John McCain campaign screw that up? Well, it, it wasn't the only time either. Um, they, said, they said this isn't the first time, this is the official statement from Dave Grohl, this isn't the first time the McCain campaign has used a song without making any attempt to get approval or permission from the artist. It's frustrating and infuriating that someone who claims to speak for the American people would repeatedly show such little respect for creativity and intellectual property. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I do know on, on that note, though, I know that uh, it was ASCAP, the, the licensing organization or whatever. It's, it's interesting with a lot of music like this that it's just it's licensable. If you're making a small indie movie and you have the budget to license a Foo Fighters song or something, you can. Uh, and it. it kind of obviously comes it's difficult because politicians their views might not align with the bands and it's different promoting a politician that you don't agree with accidentally through your music um and so i've, I've heard and because this has happened quite a few times recently with a certain presidential candidate um and i've heard that certain bands actually have it written in their like you know licensing agreements or whatever that it will not be used for political advertising or that it will have to get approved specifically for political purposes and also i think political candidates just in general try to ask permission because it can be so controversial and the artists can fire back at you know the use of their song and say no i don't support that person so licensing is very very complex is the long story short so if i wanted to make a political assault on the other side i could put a nickelback song behind their their you know <laughs> ad or campaign <laughs> And everyone would be like, oh, there's instant crash. Well, here's here's two other examples um, of this this kind of situation. One is also the McCain, McCain campaign using uh, Barracuda by Hart um, in reference to Sarah Palin. And Anne and Nancy Wilson of Hart did not like that. Um, Let's see, Bruce Springsteen and John Mellencamp also objected to use of their songs. But on the Democratic side also, um, soul legend Sam Moore did not like Barack Obama's use of Soul Man. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and then the, the, other, the other case of intellectual property, and this is an interesting little tidbit too. This was only a year ago, 2019, um, October 8th. 
Pitbull, you know, the, the pop artist, trademarked his famous yell, called, you know, Grito, uh, making it, it's one of the, the only sounds like this that are protected by trademark, probably the first of its kind. So my question for you all is, are you familiar with this yell? I only know DJ Khaled's yell. This is this is new to me. What does Pitbull do? Tell me. <laughs> See, I didn't don't, know. Don't it tell us. Show us, Carly. Let's, yeah, let's yeah, yeah. I, I have it here because I was like, what? What is this? No, Carly, um, I want to hear you do it. <laughs> is it okay? Do we have a license to play it if it's protected? Intellectual. Well, hopefully, we don't get flagged. If we need to edit it out, <laughs> we will. But I mean, it, this is from the Miami Herald website. So let me see. I'll just share this. Sue them, Pitbull, if something's wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. You're going to find see. out. I mean, I assume it's a scream. So there's um, three and a half minutes of this Pitbull yell compilation if you're if you're looking for it on the Miami Herald website. But that's it. And now you know. You're like, oh, I've heard that. Things. People are genius. I mean, look at us. We're, we're going to now talk about uh, audiences also and how to ensure that you communicate with people and are able to make money doing this noble thing called music. But look, people are able to trademark and make money off of their yells. So we're just not creative enough, it seems like, as classical percussionists. I just, I, if I can have my, my little claim to fame moment, I have performed with Pitbull. <laughs> what do you mean? How'd you do that? Yeah, You have to tell that story. Not just Pitbull, Pitbull and Jennifer Lopez, actually. So uh, when I was in Miami, I think it was maybe right after I graduated, they, uh, they were hosting the, uh, I'm going to say it like a white person, Univision uh, Teen Choice Awards show in Miami at the Bank United Center at University of Miami. And they wanted six drummers to perform with Pitbull and J-Lo. And so they held auditions and uh, it was basically of the nine people that showed up, the six tallest ones were selected. <laughs> <laughs> the important criteria was that. Um, so I was selected, but Mark Kalp was not. Um, and, uh, beyond that, the funny thing was, uh, that being a live televised performance, obviously to put a microphone on each drum and get a sound check and all this business was, was not in the cards. So the idea was that they would record us playing ahead of time and they would put our pre-recorded sound in the mix and then we would be performing live, but there just wouldn't be any microphones on us. So it, it wouldn't be picked up. Um, but when they wanted to record us there was only like one or two people around so what they did instead was they recorded one person playing their drum one time and then they put a chorus effect on it and made the entire rhythm out of that one note sampled <laughs> uh and if you go on on youtube you can you can find the performance i'm the the last drummer on the right side like i said there's six of us and they have three come out of either side um but it was actually it was a really cool experience I will say that we we rehearsed for six days for probably three or four hours a day for this one uh, performance. And it was a medley of a few songs. But the drummers, we were mostly just sitting around doing nothing. And it was like every time we would get ready to go out, they would cut because they wanted to work something out with the dancers, something like that. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a lot of sitting around. But uh, I will say that to her credit, Jennifer Lopez was one of the most hardworking people I've ever seen. She was very physical, very like on the set, dancing constantly. Uh, there was one time when the little lasers that go around, those actually got frozen and one it burned a hole in the back of her shirt and burned her back a little bit. And she was kind of like, oh, damn it. And then was immediately back into it. Like it didn't phase her at all. She didn't storm off or anything. Wow. But uh, there was one day that she flew to Arizona like I think she flew to Arizona like at like 8 a.m., did something there and like flew back and was like at rehearsal at 6 p.m., which obviously she's probably flying on a private jet. It's not like us flying, but still, that's a long flight from Miami all the way up to Arizona and back in a day. Um, so, yeah, it was it was just one of those just bizarre, weird experiences that I just sort of fell into. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it, uh, I will say, I mean, I, I'm not an avid Jennifer Lopez and Pitbull listener, but I, I was impressed with both of them were very hard workers. All the dancers were very hard workers. Everyone was very nice. It was just a very good, cool experience. And yeah, it's on YouTube. You can find it. Have you seen, have you seen, oh, sorry, Ksenia. 
Yeah, I was well, going to uh, say, we'll have to put the link below, yeah, Ben, totally you've got there, it to yeah. <laughs> Totally relevant. I remember watching it live on TV. Yeah, my whole family was like so excited. It was the only time they've ever turned into the Hispanic television channel. But they were so excited. So, yeah. So so is she not like South Park's portrayal of her? No, she was totally nice. Well, the other thing was, the funny thing was when we auditioned, I like, I don't, I barely, like, honestly don't really know what she looks like all that much. And she wasn't wearing any makeup and she just had her hair in a bun on the top of her head. And you forget that she's what, like around 50 years old now. Uh, and so she like, she looks very beautiful when she's made up and her hair is done and all, but she just looked like a kind of normal middle-aged Hispanic woman. Uh, and so like, I kind of leaned over to someone and was like, is that, is that her? <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's her. Okay. <laughs> I, I just looked up a pit bull. A video on YouTube because I'm not familiar with Pitbull at all. This song's called Give Me Everything. It has 758, you guys have to guess, 758,000, 758,000, or 758 million views. Million. Wow. Yeah, that's right. I'm shocked. Yeah, million. I've never heard of this person. I don't know how that can that can happen, but uh, you that's Pitbull. No, I don't. I mean, Mr. maybe Mr. Five himself. No, I don't know. I don't know you, what. Yeah, you've heard, him. you've heard him. Whether you know it or not, you've heard him. Zon. Well, you're probably right, man. Yeah, like I probably have. But but you know that's a ton of views for any music video. But I don't know if y'all have ever seen YouTube videos in the billions. If you have, I know of Gangnam Style. Is that in the billions? Yeah, yeah. I think I, that was the first video to hit a billion views, and they actually made like a little like dancing icon just for that. Jorge, do your kid, do your little, you have little kids, right? I have a daughter, yes. Uh huh. How old is she? She's five years old. Oh, okay, so you maybe have sat her in front of YouTube a little bit. Oh yeah, she shows me videos on YouTube. Oh man, I, something my son watches. I mean, it had. I was amazed. I had to really look at the number hard. I was like, wait a minute, this has like three billion views. That can't be possible. But sure. no, she was she was listening to she was singing along to um, Genie in a Bottle. Christina Aguilera and she was singing it and she was dancing it and then I was like random how do you know this song like how how do you know this song you're like that was a long time ago and it's like a re a redone version on some kind of Disney movie or something wow fun 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 (laughs) Carly any more news for us that wasn't enough for you Casey no I was gonna say I just didn't want to no that was a 20 minute icebreaker nice job that's amazing that's what I got for for October 8th that's really cool. I, I saw the Takimitsu item, and I don't know, maybe it came up in another uh, a previous episode's news, but I thought we've talked about, uh, again, maybe it just wasn't. We did. It was, uh, it was Ming Kui Huo's episode. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So it made me think, like, wow, have we done a year of news? You know, or did we do something else? That was Takimitsu? just We just talked about Takimitsu because she had played Takimitsu. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Cool, but yeah, cool. he, he has a, a piece a lot of people play called Toward the Sea, uh, and there's a guitar version with flute and a harp version with flute, and she was saying that and she does that. Like both and mixed, mixed and matched, yeah. I've done the piece Carly mentioned called Rain Spell, and every time I've told a percussionist there's this cool piece called Rain Spell, they're like, uh-uh, it's called Rain Tree. Like, no, it's a different piece, <laughs> right? I know Rain Tree's the common one. But there's a cool another one called Rain Spell. Anyway, hey, well, I was gonna ask Jade because you're out there in Oregon, and right now, man, I got a I got a little phone conversation and some text photos from uh, my arch enemy Pius Chang the other day, and the sky is orange in Oregon, and like, how's it going there? Are you okay? It's really yeah, frightening. I'm- thankful that I'm doing all right, but there's a lot of people affected right now. Um, I'm in Ashland, so that's really south in Oregon, about 20, 20 miles from California. And the fire here started about five minutes from my house and then just went north. So thankfully I wasn't really impacted, but I have a lot of coworkers. Our uh, associate percussion professor um, lost his house, uh, Brian Jeffs. No way. Yeah. yeah Brian Jeffs. Mm-hmm. Oh, my it's God. The, it's like the air quality affected where you are? Yeah. Uh, last post I saw from 
Corvallis, which is about mid-state, was like 400 uh, API, I think it is. But like, oh my god, I, like, yeah, that science doesn't know what to consider it. It maxes out at 500. Pius was explaining that to me because I, I didn't know what that was either. So that's like air particle particulates in the dense, like the density of particulates in a given amount of air. And he said it's something like four, like 440 or something ridiculous. And he said the most it can possibly be is 500. And I was kind of confused by that. Like, well, wait, why couldn't there just be more smoke in the air? And he said, no, there's literally no more space, like no more smoke particles will fit above 500 so at that point you're just breathing like as much smoke as i can 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 fit um so I, yeah i mean it's, it seems very very serious yeah i mean luckily we all have masks now so we can kind of fight it but yeah but it's still pretty bad so so that's probably put an additional halt. I mean, you know, we can't help but talk about COVID on these episodes lately, and it'd be great to hear a little about that from everyone. But, I mean, the fires are probably putting this huge additional burden on all your school and performance activities. Is that is that the case, Jade? I kind of expect it to be the case, but officially our building reopens tomorrow. Okay. And school starts the week after. I kind of still have a hunch that it won't but we'll see sure and i haven't heard anything from any other institutions what's what's professor longshore doing with COVID? is he having you guys do virtual playing or something like that are you just going for recordings what's the plan we're allowed to do hybrid right now again i don't anticipate that to be the case in a couple weeks but um we're going to be socially distanced performing together at least uh-huh. while I, I'm doing a lot of recording projects of my own, like I'm doing a recorded recital. Um, but we're supposed to be performing and doing live stream concerts. Cool. Well, and then you said there's only five of you, right? There's four this year. Four this year. So possible. Yeah. 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 We're doing hybrid here too. And yeah, it's, it's a interesting kind of convenience because <laughs> I think a lot of all of our favorite rep is quintets, quartets, trios. It tends to be small uh, amounts of bodies. And yeah, if you have a studio of, you know, 27 people, it's hard to get <laughs> everyone playing as I'm sure you guys know. And so, yeah, it was kind of a, a blessing in disguise this semester for me, just thinking, oh, great, now I have an excuse. Hey, I can only program quartets. And there's this other advantage to doing small ensemble things. So, yeah, it's, it sounds like it's about the same over here, too. Has anyone uh, has anyone come up with clever repertoire choices? For example, I'm doing Russell Peck liftoff, which actually works better if the performers are spread apart. We're doing, t- we're doing table music on a long table. <laughs> now, yeah any 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 clever rep i was actually gonna ask jade what rep are you are you all doing we we have a lot of like consortiums that we're a part of so we're gonna be trying to vinyao stress and flow that the percussion collective did cool and uh ivan trevino just released a quartet and drum set like chamber concerto thing for uh cameron leach and we're supposed to be performing that too yeah but nothing i don't think anything particularly uh clever covid right are you supposed are you performing that with cameron or is just like someone in the group playing the drum set part i think someone in the group um i don't think cameron can really travel too much right now maybe he is i don't know it'd be a fun joke though to email him like hey we want to give you twenty thousand dollars oh covid never mind he's a friend of the show (laughs) yeah Hey, Cameron. <laughs> That'd be a good funny day. joke. It's <laughs> not very funny. Yeah, you're right. That's not very funny at all. What about what about Manny and Jorge? Are you guys programming any any like clever programmings with your students? Or I, I'd also just love to know, like, man, how is it teaching in school right now? You know? Uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I mean, like right now we we we're we're doing the uh, the marching band thing so we're going you know because it's texas and we're going hard on that um and the all state music you know for the high schoolers the high schoolers um so i'm not i haven't really thought about programming too much that's not going to happen until probably october but i'm trying to program some like brett deets uh, his urban hymns uh 
where it's, it's an open instrumentation. I'm also trying to look into getting getting into the weird stuff, some Earl Brown, some four systems and things like that. Just exposing, just exposing these kids to just different things. Yeah. Is that is that the Earl Brown piece, four systems? Uh, it, he has two. He's got uh, four systems and December 1914 or 13. Yeah. Yeah. The graphic notation stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. How do you, how do you do that? That's the one I'm familiar with. I'm not familiar with four systems. How do you do that one with students? Because because those of you who don't know, and I'll, I'll I can edit over a, a little overlay of this piece, but it's just like a single page with a bunch of just little uh, horizontal and vertical lines, right? So the four systems, it's it's got dots throughout it, but it's also got a series of lines. And then the December 1952, I, I'm not probably, I got to check that. I'm probably saying the, the wrong year, but uh, it's just dots, just little random dots. And you can interpret it anyway. Like for me, my first recital, I, I, uh, I, I did it, I did it four times. I did it once like this, and then I stacked it, and then I stacked it, and then I stacked it. And the whole time I had a recording of the, the smog from that year in December in, in, in uh, the UK. So while I was doing things like, on Tam Tams, there was a recording of news articles from that year. So oh, it's, it's, fun. it's super open. And it's 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 a solo piece, but, I mean, you can have multiple people play. You know, I don't see why you couldn't. Yeah. And and you're right. It's 52. I just checked. Yeah, December 1952. Yeah. So, so what do you have your students do specifically, or how do you approach or let them approach the graphic score because I know I, I did a semester like that and actually I uh, collaborated with the uh, some of the SMAD folks here a class and got these really great graphic uh, graphic notations that I've, I've got hung on my wall now but yeah we did a whole concert of interpretive collaborations and that sort of thing and yeah what how do you how do you give that to a kid or a group of kids it's really for my students, it's really just here it is and go. And if you have questions, I'll answer it. But I just want to see what you're going to come up with because I, at least at my school, it's they've been fed a certain type of music, certain type of repertoire, and this is something that they are they have not done. And so I just it's really more of an experiment, really. Uh huh. Uh huh. Do you, do you think or have you seen yet a benefit? Or and I guess this question for anyone, like a specific benefit to using that kind of experiment, graphic notation, something that's real vague and not very specific, with students. Yeah, I love it. I mean, it, Brett Brett Dietz, he's the one who got me into it, and he, my first lesson, I, I played like with these rules coming from Texas. And he's like, "Why are you playing like that? Why are you doing it that way?" And I was like, "I don't know. Like that's because I'm from I Texas." Yeah, like I, I don't know. It's like I just that's the way they told me. He's like, Well, where's the rule book that they read it from? I want to know where they got all these rules. I'm like, I don't know. There's no rules. And he just started giving me this rep and it was just getting me out of my comfort zone. And that's kind of what I I guess what I'm trying to do with, with these students, just getting them out of their comfort zone and becoming yeah. their own well, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's that sounds like what I got out of it too. Yeah, Ben. Yeah, I was going to add to that. Our friend uh, Tyson Voigt and his wife Jennifer, they have a duo, and I had them do a, a performance at my school a while back. And Jen does the, one of the Barrio Sequenzas. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those, but it's it's graphically notated. And it's, I mean, it's it's Barrio, it's out there. But she said, the thing I like is that like, you can't be wrong with it. Like, there's a little swiggle, and like, you know what that means. So like you're free to perform that, but there's there's not this like anxiety of missing a note. So and I think Carly might have even actually talked about that in her dissertation or something. But uh, there's there's a certain freedom to there. Yes, you can do it wrong. That's obvious. But like you're you're not going to miss a note, so to speak. That I think there's a freedom to that. Uh, if you that play maybe a, someone with performance anxiety it can help them out. If you play a C major chord, it's wrong. Come on. <laughs> Well, I agree with that. You know, especially for younger students, sometimes it can help them just break out of this thought process of I need to play this correctly. I need to play it accurately. And also sometimes there's a level of I'm not sure if I understand this. So I'm, you know, I'm not analyzing in the same way and something that's more open. We can talk about what's the character, what's the mood, what's happening here and just in different ways. And we underestimate kids a lot, I think. I think we think like, oh, this is so mature. I wasn't ready for this until I was in grad school. But the, the truth is, like, they're open and they're ready to learn and, and take on new different things. I think we overestimate composers sometimes, too. You know, we think, oh, 
Barrio wrote Sequenzas. And I mean, the Earl Brown's way more laid back than the, you know, the Barrio Sequenzas for sure. But I, I think they often want to have something that <laughs> doesn't have so many rules and isn't so strict. And the whole point was to lighten up the mood of, you know, this this whole genre a little bit and to, yeah, not feel like they have this owens to a big tradition and to serialism and, you know, I mean, you know they want to do something different. So they, they want you to play with that kind of freedom also. Yeah. Jorge, how are your students doing? What Are, are you doing anything um, of, of note here or, or different that we should take word uh, note of? Um, I have not seen them yet since March. <laughs> it's just oh, been virtual, right? virtual online okay. teaching. Yeah. Um, in a month from now, we'll start. Some kids will have the option to start going to school for extracurricular activities. So I started week. I started school this week, this past week, and it was all virtually. It's bizarre. Uh, it's been tough. It's been tough to say the least, like um, losing kids because um, obviously they're not doing much. I mean, they're all about the marching arts and those activities. And now they can't even do that if they were to stay in band. Uh, there's no marching season going on. So like, why should I stay in band? And that's what's fun for me and why the reason why I do it. So uh, it's been really difficult. Yeah. Uh, so it's just a bunch of all-state region. As, as you know, like with the difficulty of the music and it's not everybody has to do it. It's not mandatory. Well, then the kids that don't have that, um, they kind of feel left out. I mean, but it's interesting. We'll see. I mean, like I said, we, we I just started the first week of school. And maybe like in a month from now, they'll be able to start going back to school. And they're looking forward to it. And so am I. It, it's really affirming, I mean, to see them miss that, I bet. Yeah, of course. You know? I mean, I agree. A, a lot of it has been like, I mean, fit for, for me, like, 50% of the time that I'm in class with them or having a lesson with them, I'm, I'm just talking to them. I'm just talking yeah. to them. How's it going? And what's up with you guys? And I'll tell them how I've been dealing with all this and my side of it and whatever and like giving them hope. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think he'd mind me sharing the, the, the actually the number four who, who didn't make the call today or, or maybe he's going to join us later, uh, Alan. He, he was one of my students at Concord University where I used to teach before JMU. And man, we had a rough start. You know, it was like, Al, you got to practice more. Al, you got to do this, you know, and oh, I want to do these other things. No, 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 you got to do this. I mean, he really just turned it around amazingly. Like he, had, he walked out of there just totally different and good and incredible. But in those couple of early years, I thought, oh, I bet, I bet Alan just can't stand me. You know, it seems like he just hates it here. And he just, it seems like I'm just cracking the whip on him all the time. He must just hate me. And then one day on Facebook in the summer, he said, oh, I can't wait to get back to, to Concord and get back into music and back into school. And it was just so affirming, like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, I, I had that all wrong. And actually he really, really like loves it here. And, you know, so yeah, that's, that's cool. We do have a topic. So, Ksenia, are you ready for that topic? Or am I springing that on you? Oh, you're muted. You're muted. In America, yeah. we have Hello. a mute button. We, Hello. Yeah. Excuse yeah. me. In Serbia, we don't know what computer is. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, we have a, an interesting topic um, sort of to start off. Um, and I think this article uh, that I got out of the New York Times. Um, it comes from the Critics Notebook, and uh, the title is "Classical Music Attracts Older, Older, Older Audiences." Good. Um, uh, it's pretty. Um, it, it has a very nice point to it, and here's here's basically what it says to summarize. Um, so, COVID uh, affected obviously all live performing arts and audiences, and the classical music is most vulnerable. Why? Because most of our audiences are uh, comprising the elderly. So they did a bunch of research and um, supplied all these results and said um, the average age of the audience at the Metropolitan Opera last season was 57 years old, the same as the New York Philharmonic. About 62% of the Philharmonic's audience was 55 and older. Uh, by contrast, like average Broadway audiences between 40 and 45 for the past two decades. So not even Broadway has very young audience on average. So we seem to think that this is sort of a bad omen for us that the arts are dying. 
Um, however, the article then says that, you know, if you look at images and television broadcasts from uh, 50, 60 years ago, from, you know, the 1960s when Leonard Bernstein was galvanizing the Philharmonic and attracting young people uh, to come to his concerts, audiences were still dominated by people in their 50s or older. Um, so it seems like this is not really changing. More than half of our audiences are, are old. And the nice thing that the article says, which I really thought was so, so lovely, is that it says this is actually not um, a bad omen. It's testimony to how dedicated these people are to the art form that they love so much. So yes, you might, you know, in a concert hall, see more people um, with walkers than just in general in public. But to think that that's a bad thing is a sign of ageism and actually them showing up and it takes uh, them likely a lot of effort to employ, you know, this mobility to, to show up. It, it says that they really, really care so that those people are in love with the art form and are willing to go that extra mile to be there, uh, even though it might be more uncomfortable than for young people to just on their heels, you know, just waltz into a, a room. So... Um, it says uh, it's easy to sort of uh, assume that uh, the reason why the orchestras and classical music is dying is because we're trying to cater to this audience and this audience only likes old pieces of music, classics, whatever you want uh, to say. And that, you know, young people need new things, which then sort of uh, is what repels the older folks. So we have this clash of what do we want to do? Do we want to recruit more audience or we want to keep uh, hold of our, our true fans? But it's actually not true. The author says, you know, yes, I sometimes read a note which says that um, I just wasted 20 minutes of my life because I sat through this contemporary piece of music. And usually the note is also signed with in my, you know, many decades of, of going to concerts, I rarely like to witness something like this and, and I prefer to avoid it. Um, but so the young people, I think we, we do sort of assume that young people are perhaps too interested in, in, uh, in new in the arts. They, some, some of them just aren't. Some of them are, some of them aren't. And I'm sure if you look at your own circle of people, I know many people, you know, between teenagers and the elderly, there are fans of contemporary art or music everywhere. Um, and it's not just reserved for the young ones. So basically the, the, the article says that the problem is not age, the problem is diminishing attention span. It's just that we're so used to everything flashing before our eyes and all these videos being a minute long that we just are not very used to employing our patience sitting down and making sure that our eyes aren't um, entertained by this fantastic you know, circus in front of us um, so that we've sort of become desensitized to that we always need more of. And basically the article just says, okay, well, deal with it. You have a great fan base. It's a lovely thing to have. Uh, be grateful for it. It will not go away um, and sort of flips the, the view, I think, which is really lovely. Be, be grateful for those who come to your concerts. Um, but I think this um, will bring up some other questions about how do we uh, reach the audiences that might be potentially interested in us. But Casey, you had something you wanted to say. Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. So I think the attention span thing is right on the nose because I, I agree, you know, and actually, if you look at, you know, the older folks that attend classical concerts, they were alive when like a lot of the new music was really hip, like when Boulez was happening, when Varez was happening. I mean, a lot of the a lot of that audience is still around. And so it's like that uh, saying that uh, reportedly Al Audi says, the good old days of new music. So it's funny, I, I know I've told this story before, so sorry, but percussion ensemble concert here at JMU, we're playing a bunch of stuff and on there is ionization. And ionization is by Varez. Varez is the only composer in the program that has died. He's the oldest composer on the program. Yeah, that sounds like the most contemporary, the most modern. It's the least poppy thing. And it's a fun program note to make, of course. Like, isn't it interesting how the oldest thing actually kind of sounds the newest 
in a way. So I think as far that that should speak to the tastes of the audience, like young people supposedly wanting new stuff. Well, what do you mean by new? Do you mean that it's really crunchy and super atonal? Or that it's minimalism, or do you mean that? Oh, we also have video projections to like keep their attention and and get them back here. But I, I I think it's the problem isn't there. I think the problem is, man, it's hard to get down to the concert hall. Like, wait, you tell me that I need to park here and then I need to get on the subway to get to Symphony Hall, and then I gotta walk up those stairs, and then I gotta pay fifty dollars, and then you know, like, wait, when the Berlin Phil for half that price, I can have like a year subscription. I think it's actually about that price. But you know what I mean? Like there's so many different alternatives now. And I, I wonder if the the secret to retaining the audience is not to worry so much about the live performance right there in the traditional model, but try to just get more virtual, try to get more digital, try to do the the boston symphony orchestra podcast try to i mean still play like still do the live performance i mean that is the core of it but try to tap into some of these other other things that are quick and snappy and and uh, apparently that's what people the only way people will consume this you know so maybe like that's where it's progressive it's not progressive and like oh the rep sucks or or anything like that yeah um i had a lot of kind of strong feelings about that article um the most bold for me was it neglects to mention that older audiences generally have a lot more disposable income than younger audiences and that i think is a huge part <laughs> in why younger audiences just can't make it to the hall like for me to go see any like world-renowned orchestra i have to drive six hours pay thirty dollars for the worst ticket in the world <laughs> the yeah. and you know and parking and gas and food and that's a whole day trip like whereas if they switch to like a video subscription model like you mentioned where it's more high production like the met or berlin phil you know you can charge 15 dollars for a subscription or you know 10 5 dollars for a ticket and still kind of make up those costs because you're not necessarily Especially in COVID, you're not um, paying for the sh um, ushers, you know, concessions people, all of those other things. And I, I find that orchestras are just really reluctant to do that. And I, I, I really don't know why. Chamber well, too. Yeah. Well, I know, I mean, the Berlin Phil, who who does it, you know, the best, you know, I mean, man, the infrastructure they have to support that. And not that I actually know what it is, but I've, I've had that prescription before. And we, we're getting our, our uh, streaming going. I know, Ben, relax. I, I, um, we're getting our streaming going at JMU. And it is complicated and it is expensive. And... Um, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Ben. You you derailed me. You win. You win, Ben. I'm le I'm leaving. <laughs> well, yeah, I was gonna I mean the, the subscription thing is is certainly one way to go, and that's a very hip thing. One thing I'm curious about is uh, I've never heard it applied to classical music, but there's there's this term of like subscription fatigue, like how many different subscription services do we want? And Berlin Phil obviously has, as far as classical music is concerned, the best one. I mean outstanding. But if Berlin has one, New York has one, Cleveland has one, like how many people are going to start subscribing to all of these? So I'm actually wondering if at some point, like the, is there like American Federation of Orchestras or something like that, some sort of union thing, if they'll come up with some thing where a bunch of orchestras band together and you can watch, you know, one live concert a week and you can access all their archive recordings, that sort of thing. But also, in terms of getting young audiences, did anyone else see the news from the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra this week? No, no. what was it? So, uh, Baltimore Symphony Orchestra announced that, uh, let's see here, in anticipation of a new digital concert series to be launched this fall, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra announces the strategic expansion of the orchestra's artistic team through three roles with immediate effect. The one-year extension of Nicholas Hirsch as associate conductor and the two-year appointments of both Jonathan Rush as assistant conductor and Wordsmith as artistic partner. 
Um, and just looking at these people's photos, Nicholas Hirsch looks to be a very young conductor. Jonathan Rush also looks to be a very young conductor that is also black. And Wordsmith is like a, a black, uh, um, let's see here, sorry. Uh, like, a, I, I can't tell if he's a rapper or just a black poet or something like that. But obviously with the current political trends, um, we're trying to in incorporate more diversity in the orchestras. And there's this like sort of risk of tokenization with this of like, oh, well, yeah, of course they went out and got a black guy to, you know, whatever. But this has been going on actually for quite a while. Um, and Wordsmith was, let's see here, he made his debut BSO appearance as a narrator in 2017 and has partnered in special events such as the BSO's 2018 gala as well as in special artistic projects such as Altogether, A Global Ode to Joy, the BSO and Marin Alsop's collaboration with Carnegie Hall to represent, uh, to reimagine Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. Um, so I thought that Baltimore Symphony was taking some very interesting proactive steps there to sort of gear up for a, a new future of the symphony orchestra. Yeah, that's important. Well, and, and going back a, a few minutes ago, we were talking about live performance versus online performances and subscriptions and all of this. And what scares me a lot, and I think also probably scares orchestra management, is people like we don't want people to stop going to live performances, right? And if it's so easy, trust me, I love being able to access anything, find anything on YouTube or or online and and for free. But if it's so easy and free to to see and hear music. Why is anybody going to, you know, go through all the trouble, as Jada say, like six hour drive and then valet your car and, you know, a ticket price and all of this. Um, and we all know as, as musicians, we know there's no substitute for live music. Like live music is not the same as check out a recording of Check 4 on YouTube through your whatever speakers or headphones you have. Um, and that's what I think about what I what I'm afraid of. Um, right now with like financial health of orchestras and of performing arts organizations, concert halls and all of that. Um, how, how are we convincing people that it's worth going to the concert hall once all of this is over? Um, I have a, a few thoughts there. Um, for one, I think it's a very natural um, response with this fear, but this has happened, you know, 600 years ago with the invention of the press or with, with printing being easily uh, made available to people. Um, they were like, oh my God, we're never going to use our brains because we don't have to remember anything anymore. What's going to happen? And then there was the the invention of, you know, the phonograph and people were like, oh my God, people are never going to go to the concerts because they can listen to stuff at home. And then there was the radio and then the TV killed the radio star and, you know, then the internet, blah, blah. it never happens. I mean, the New York Times went digital. People have digital subscriptions and some people still buy like actual newspaper and it's fine they're doing just fine they have actually been able to spread their influence a lot more nobody stopped buying the newspaper because they could get three free articles online per month and access them on on the internet it's actually it it does well the thing that do, doesn't work well is for orchestras to stick to their old business models of subscriptions when that do, simply doesn't work for people especially for you know if you're young and you travel a lot and doesn't matter. Maybe your income doesn't allow you to simply buy a subscription. I think orchestras need to reconsider how they do their business. I mean, and again, I, this, I know this is a rant, but when I run into those Instagram influencers or whatever, who literally will sell fog for a million dollars, I'm always like, Jesus Christ. I mean, these people are able to make you, business out of nothing, out of like, life life coaches you know <laughs> or, or or it doesn't matter not like life coaching is a bad thing but people are literally able to sell anything i'm sure you've gotten those weird ads that you make a screenshot out of and you're like why am i being targeted to like how is someone selling this what do you mean they sold fog it's an expression like you're able oh. to sell fog you know it's 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 just like it's you, you, there's nothing. nothing, nothing. Yeah, you're selling uh -huh. nothing. But you're selling, you know, a marketing, uh, whatever, you're a marketing guru, or you have a, a little workshop about how to write your own ebook, even though you've never written an ebook, or whatever. People sell everything, and they make a lot of money. It's just be about being current, and not sticking to a model, a business model that was feasible and workable, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. Sell ice to an Eskimo. Exactly, Ben. Thank you. I, I used this. This is, was a Serbian expression, by the way, to sell fog. I don't think you're <laughs> supposed to say Eskimo, Ben. 
Svet, Svet said it to me. That's that's where I learned that expression. I don't think <laughs> Svet is supposed to say it. Svet should not say it. Okay, let's well, take that. Well, well, like, well, but certainly it's not going as well. Like, you're right, Ksenia, you know, they said, oh, the phonograph's going to change everything and no one's going to have to go to a concert anymore. But it certainly is diminishing, right? I mean, it certainly is not going like it used to, right? Like, they, they, they say there was a time classical music was like the pop music of the day. I mean, that's certainly so far from the truth now for a long time, right? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if that's true. Um, it's It still happened to be within the elite. Uh, mostly you had to have some sort of income and access to to a concert hall and so on. So I think it's okay for things to change. And I think now there are all these innovative orchestras that do fusions. So we are much more interested in seeing, you know, Jacob Collier with an orchestra, because that's really new and fresh. Um, or, you know, a, a suite of whatever, Jamiroquai tunes. Because uh -huh. that's really cool. As opposed to sticking to, okay, we'll play the same music you could have seen us program 100 years ago, and we're going to charge you in the same way that we did 100 years ago, and the hall's going to look exactly the same. I mean, it's nice if you market it as a, like, come step into a time machine and hang out with us for two hours. But it simply doesn't work if you want it to be a business model that will sustain so many people today. Right. Manny, right. go ahead. Yeah, and so there. Well, there's a lot of there are a lot of different factors to everything we're talking about, and the, the layers go deeper. But just to kind of talk about, you mentioned programming. You're right. I, I feel like every time I go to a to a to an orchestra concert, it's I, hey, I heard that last month. Oh yeah, Shahrazad, oh, that's awesome. I I also heard it six months ago. You know, it's we're hearing a lot of the same things, and it does. I think it does go to programming. We, I think I don't know if we're we're scared. To do the to program the Verez, to program the Earl Brown, are we trying to scare away not scare away our audience member? But I think once once we start taking those first those first baby steps, that's when we start getting different reactions. That's when people start talking. Oh yeah, I went to go see I went to go see so and so, and it was yeah the good stuff. But there was this one piece that they programmed. I had never heard of it. It was the one composer who was who was not living, but it was the best piece I heard. I don't know. I think that's that's kind of the first step. Do you think like, you know, so Seattle Symphony brings Sir Mix a lot to do a solo with the orchestra? Like, don't you think they think like, okay, so we'll get, you know, we'll get Sir Mix a lot here. That'll be a big sellout show, which it was. But then I think they think like I doubt a whole bunch of G's are like coming to concerts from now on after that. You know, geez, gangsters, gangsters, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Grandmas. Yeah, <laughs> no, a bunch of G's. <laughs> oh. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, okay, that one, that one thing probably made made money. I mean, unless they had to pay Sir Mix a lot. I mean, they probably, gosh, you probably, you know, um, could be very, very expensive. But you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, oh, now we have this new audience and they're going to be like, ooh, violins. I'm going to go be hip to Mozart now. No, no, of course not. But I think that's the whole point. You're supposed to start being more current with, with the events that go on around you. So you can always have a, a portion of your programming uh, be dedicated to old masters. And of course, that's what that's the shoulders that we stand on. That's beautiful music. But we have so much exciting stuff that happens right now. And I think we are sort of just trying to hold onto this dam that is cracked to let other arts and to, to literally like listen to people. What do people want to listen to? If, I mean, if you're trying to just make a, a pure business model that works, I'm not saying if you have an altruistic idea and you want to program just Baroque music, do it, doesn't matter. But I mean, you can talk to the people and see where they spend their money. I mean, they, they mm -hmm. buy silk, you know, bed sheets to not get acne or whatever. I mean, they'll buy a ticket to to go to a concert if it interests them. If you don't know what interests them, ask them. I but I guess that's but I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think it's the product. It's the it's it's what Jade was saying. It's the convenience of the product that's so difficult. Because, like, you know, we've established okay, older folks they're actually more hip to what's truly new music. And, you know, we think, oh, the solution is bring Sir Mix a lot. The solution is get video stuff up there for young people. But I, I think it's, you know, I, I'm amazed. Like I went, did a master's program in Boston. I lived, oh, six minute walk from Symphony Hall. And when I, 
got there, I said to myself, oh, I'm going to go to Symphony Hall like every freaking night. And one of the, you know, the teachers are going to help me get in there. They're going to sneak me in and say, I go find an empty seat, which is literally what Pat Hollenbeck said he, and, and did for us several times when, when we first uh, when I first got there. But I mean, it's just like I'm embarrassed how few times I made it there. You know, like it's like a crime. It was right there. You, you know, like I should have been there so much more. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm even an advocate who's, like, specifically interested in this, and I still didn't make it very much. Like, as a student, I should have been there so much. Well, I mean, I know, but I think I I lived very far away from a concert hall, and I went at least every Friday. And I couldn't afford a ticket, so I just stand there with my puppy eyes and see if they would let me in. And I Mm. did that for a full decade. Um, when I lived in Belgrade, when it was, when it was within, like I could get on a public transport and get there somehow. I didn't live in that city. I lived in the suburbs. I think it's just about what itches you. I mean, if Gojira showed up at the BSO, you would have gone, right? You got to get your nice. I've seen 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 them. I saw them once. (laughs) So it's just about what's your burning desire, but maybe you wouldn't go see Gojira every Friday. I mean, and that's okay. (laughs) Uh So I think it's fine. Um, Jade, you were going to say something. Sorry about no worries. About Casey. Sorry about Casey, Jade. <laughs> there, I got it, Ksenia. Um, we were talking about like Sir Mix-a-Lot or, or like a possible Gojira <laughs> concert or something. But <laughs> like Metallica just did another concert with San Francisco Symphony. You know, like those, those things sell out. Yep. And, and concerts like that, where they honor, honor the old art and bring the new while having sort of visual things to interact with i don't think we should shy away from that like there's plenty of art forms you know visual art dance that we could you know have choreographed for our older rep that we just don't really you either have to go to the ballet or you go to the symphony there's rarely a combination Mm -hmm. and i think dance is kind of dying too so we should support them yeah I guess I'm just wondering if the angle, because I think we're all in agreement, like stuff needs to change and we need to get stuff better. I guess I I feel like an argument, I feel like a fight is forming between Ksenia and I, which is common, but it's, um, I think it's like the rep, <laughs> like I don't think anything's wrong with the rep, you know, because you hear it all the time, like, oh, I had to sit through, like the article said, I had to sit through this torturous 20, 20 minute long, super avant-garde crunchy piece. But like we've seen it happen so many times where somebody plays it right and it's great. You know, everyone walks out of there just loving it, whether they knew they liked the new music or not. So, like, you know, we know it's not it's not the rep's fault. I feel like it's the delivery system's fault. It's the accessibility. It's the driving six hours, you know. Uh, Manny, I think. So, yeah, just talking about rep. Uh, so this was Beethoven's 250th. And I was, I was, if there was no COVID, we probably would have been hearing it in every, every concert all over. But because of COVID, nobody's, nobody's going out. How, how do you all feel about if COVID was not a thing and you were going to concerts and you were only hearing one through nine? Like every, how, how, do you, how would you all feel about it? I can, I've, I've answered this question many times. It's easy for me. I expect Ksenia to fight me because that'll make for an interesting show, but I'll never, I mean, I have my Beethoven symphonies. I like more than the others. And actually it's real easy for me. My favorites are nine, seven, five, three in that order. That's uh, the reverse uh, odd numbered order, but I've never been one of those people. that's like, Oh, I've heard, you know, Beethoven five too many times. I'd, I'd prefer to hear a nine again because I've heard it far less times. But I, I don't really get tired of, you know, like hearing it again and hearing how they're going to do it. And, oh, are the basses going to screw up that excerpt, big unison excerpt in the in the third movement? Like, I want to, you know, I want to see what this piece does to that, uh, you know, that orchestra or what this conductor pulls out of it. You know, what what are you guys saying in the chat? Say this stuff out loud. Let's hear it. What is no, this? I thought I thought last episode you said you didn't like Beethoven, but it was Mozart. I, I stand corrected. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll I mean, say it again. I don't care for Mozart. I will say Mozart. Mozart sounds like a sterilized hospital. Like everything is like so sterile and clean, and 
it's like, like you know you know that feeling when you've you've just sanitized your hands a few too many times that day and it's like dry and like almost flaky that's that's what mozart feels like to me i, I know it's it. really yeah. ignorant no but. i well i was gonna say to the to the beethoven 250th thing like i think that beethoven would be honored that his like works were being performed but i also think that beethoven would be asking us 250 years later like so who who is me now who's the guy that's pushing the envelope why don't you perform his work next to mine i think that's like an, an interesting take on it you mean just because new composers like perform new composers more yeah yeah well I mean, oh, beethoven, sure. beethoven in his day was i don't i don't want to use the word avant-garde because i don't think he was that quote-unquote out there but i mean he was pushing the envelope is what i'm saying, I see what you're saying. so i think beethoven would be curious to see who's pushing the envelope but well yeah I, of course yeah good point and I, I had an interesting question for everyone, though. Um, and, like, I'll ask, uh, I'll ask Jorge. Uh, Jorge, who is, like, your favorite band or musician, like, a popular act today? Or someone that you just like? Uh, recently into Nate Smith. Okay, so... Oh, yeah. If Nate Smith was performing in town tonight, which, I, you know, assuming COVID wasn't going on, you would probably go see him, right? Yes, why would you go see him? Because I'm really into him right now. Yeah. <laughs> he's so, popping like, right now because he's in my town. I mean, it's, yeah, well, like, the, one of those, it's so easy to go and just do it. Well, the point I'm making here is what, what you didn't say, and I don't think anyone would say this, is the songs, right? So if Paul McCartney was in town, I'd go see Paul McCartney because I like Paul McCartney. And it's funny how much of this discussion about symphony orchestras is centered on the rep. But it's like, why don't you go see Chicago Symphony Orchestra? Well, I don't really know them. You know, oh, like, well, that, what are that's their interesting you know? because cause I wouldn't go see Nate Smith because of the songs, because of how what how him as an artist and how he plays the drums. Yeah, set, like that's why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I'm like, I I don't know, I don't know if we, I think we, maybe we get too hung up on what the rep is. But Casey, I see you have a thing. Yeah, this is just real quick. Guess where Nate Smith went to school? JMU. JMU, that's right. Did you teach him? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he wasn't I accepted nothing. in your professional. I had home. nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> but he went here, so. But I'm yeah, I don't know. And I mean, like, I I hate to like pump up social media as like the greatest thing in the world, but I don't know. Like, what if you know? What if a symphony orchestra had a really active Instagram following? What would that do for them? I don't know. Just a thought. Well, that's what I'm saying, like, because I don't want live performance to die at all. Like, I totally agree with what Carly said. Like, that is the best way to consume. And I have I've said a lot of things over the years on this podcast saying, like, yeah, we got to get rid of this, like, quick attention span culture thing, like, that's, like, so unhealthy. And we, we really got to dissolve that as much as we can. But unfortunately, right now, it's just kind of about survival, you know. So if you have to hop on board with that for a while to satisfy the people that only wish to consume it that way great if that'll facilitate it continuing to stay alive at all and it continuing to stay uh you know having actual live performance then great cool it's totally worth doing because i mean you all know i mean so it's so hard to sometimes get yourself there but once you're there you may or may not enjoy it f for the effort that it was worth getting there but like it really sticks with you you know, and you have so many meaning conversations with people after you've been to a concert with them, even if you didn't like it. You know, my, my favorite thing about going to the concerts here, orchestra, wind, symphony, brass band, whatever, is like, OK, I go get my little faculty seat next to a colleague and we talk and and shoot the shit and it's fun and everything. And it's enjoyable that way. But then I see like all my students who aren't playing usually up in the back on the other back roll, they're all like sitting together and they like, we do a funny wave at each other and it's fun. And then you have something to talk about for like weeks. You can say, remember that time when Jonathan picked up the triangle? This didn't happen, or at least it wasn't Jonathan, but someone, you know, picks up the triangle, they're ready to play. And then they just put it down. <laughs> they missed their triangle. Hit. You know, like all of a sudden you guys have all this common ground and stuff to talk about. And so even if you didn't have like a wonderful time as it was going on, it's like that's what enriching means to me. You know, that's what that's the difference. Like, well, was it entertaining? Did you like it? Well, that's kind of secondary to it, like just the richness of it, you know. And of course, you can make the same same argument for a live, you know, sporting event or something, you know. I think people are just going out less. 
by the way. Like, I think they should say the same thing about movie theaters. Like, even before Well, yeah, there's COVID. a pandemic right now. <laughs> hey, I was just about to say, before you, before you steamrolled me, I was just about to say, even before COVID, you know, at least the movie theater here, which is like a big uh, AMC or Regal. It's a Regal theater. I mean, it's like a big deal theater. But I, I've been watching it over the years. Because, you know, I probably go to a movie once a year once or twice a year or something but just watching like okay there's eight staff there and then there's six and then there's three and again even before covid it's like hey there's two people behind the popcorn counter and when you walk in to get your ticket one of them comes over goes behind the cashier uh you know the cashier gives you your ticket and then goes back to the popcorn you know it's like two people on on hand now because the people are just going out less you know yeah manny yeah, talking about the, the movie, the movie, movie thing. I took a, a film, a film, music course uh, one summer, and the first class we talked about it. Like people, people are going out less of the movies, and you think about it. What's the formula? You're paying twelve to twenty dollars for a ticket, and then you're buying it. Let's say a medium popcorn at six dollars a pop, and then you want a drink that's like four dollars a pop. And then anything else you want, and you're in, just by yourself, you could potentially spend like 30 to 40 or even $50. And but, the movie probably sucked. Yeah, and you're, you're, nine, you're gambling. Nine times well, out of ten. It may not even be a good movie. <laughs> Almost guaranteed it's not going to be a good movie because when are they? They're so, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's like, and why, so why, we got, down, we got down to the bottom of it. Why do people keep going? And it, I know it's, it's, it's diminishing, but why are people going? It's the experience. It's like, oh yeah, at the end of the day, or at, when I get to it, I'm gonna sit on that recliner. I'm gonna have my my homies with me or whatever, and we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk to the previews, and then we're gonna, you know, yeah, that's the experience. But yeah, yep, yep. Nine out of ten times, Jorge. How many Star Wars movies were all good? Not all ten of them. That's that's a whole another discussion in itself. So. <laughs> Don't go there. Hey, well, thanks you all so much for trying this first uh, round table. And all, all y'all listeners, if you're interested in supporting the show, you can do so by supporting the, the folks who are here because they're supporting the show. And uh, this is just a way we can thank them. And uh, yeah, please, by supporting them, you'll be supporting us. So uh, we appreciate that. And thanks. This was fun. I look, look forward to doing it again. So uh, Manny, Jorge, Jade, thank you. And Al, we hope to catch you next time. And Carly, Ksenia, and Ben, thanks as always. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, everyone. Yep, thanks, everyone. Okay, we'll catch you uh, next time, 254 or something like that, 55, I don't know. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>